You know, you know, there's very few things that are constant in life. I mean, if, even if you look around you in the environment, from our perspective, it looks like the sun moves across the sky. Our distance as earthlings from the sun changes from season to season. The moon goes through phases. Relationships have seasons. But we just sung about and heard from the scripture something about our unchanging God. That unchangeableness in God gives us a foundation. It gives us a confidence. What it means is, is that while everything else around you changes, while people's, people's perspective of you change, while your feelings about yourself change, while how people treat you, your job, anything about you can change, here's what doesn't change. God's love doesn't change. God's power is not changing. It is constant. And it builds for us, it gives us a foundation on which we can build our lives. It is the unchanging rock. It is the solid foundation of a life well built. And for the next few minutes, we're just gonna close our eyes and thank him. So would you do that with me right now in prayer? And let's thank God for being the rock on which we can build. Father, thank you that you are unchanging that when people change, when our own heart changes, when the environment in which we live changes, you are the unchanging God. We can have confidence in you. Your power is great. Your love knows no boundaries. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you. We thank you that in a world that shifts, changes, moves, and mutates, our God is dependable and trustworthy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We pray it in your name. Amen and amen. Hey, would you say hi to the folks around you before you take a seat, please? You sound absolutely fantastic. Well, when you came in, you had a program like this inside. Pastor Joseph mentioned it to you, but I want to direct your attention to uh, the summer small groups that we have. Now, small groups are where we get out of our rows in here, and we meet in other environments, houses, restaurants, whatever, coffee houses, and we sit in a circle around a table. There's typically food, and we have some conversations that matter. We typically open the Bible or some Bible-related material. There's usually a time of prayer, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, and there's conversation with people you get to know. And if you're like me, sometimes the summer schedule can be a little hectic, and it may make you decide you can't do a small group this summer because they meet weekly or bi-weekly uh, throughout the summer. But I just want to encourage you with a different reality. What if this summer you signed up for a small group today, and then the weeks you could make it, you went ahead and went? I mean, even if you can't make all the weeks... You go the ones you can when you're in town or when you don't have too much going on, and then at least you didn't put this important part of your development spiritually on hold into the fall. Uh, that's what I'm doing. I, the small group we're in is meeting. It's a slightly adjusted schedule for the summer, but we didn't want to go the entire summer and not get together and encourage one another. And so the way you do that very simply is you take the number of the small group that's in the catalog right here, this little short abbreviated summer catalog, and you just write it right next to your connect card, next step E. You just put the number right there. And when you do that one step, you'll get two things. You get all you need to find out everything you need to know about that small group. You're going to get an email. 
The second thing you'll get in that email is a one-click sign-up. So it's a one step that you need to take today. It's next step E on the Connect card right there on the front. Just write the number and you can move forward. Now, Pastor Will is on the stage uh, with me right now to share with you some exciting things that happened yesterday because you guys are amazing people. Tell everybody how amazing they are. Yeah, we had a great day. We start around here. We start our months on the first Saturday of the month serving our community. And there was three places yesterday where some awesome stuff was going on. It was at New Life Mission in Hamilton where we packed lunches, did some painting. There was a group of 16 that were actually here in the lobby <clears throat> preparing, praying, and prepping for the upcoming mission trip to Cuba. So 16 of us are going to Cuba in September. That's awesome. They were meeting here. And the last group was at the <clears throat> Healing Center. And what was really cool about the Healing Center is we were able to serve. And at the very end, our group got together and we were able to offer their team there a $1,000 check. And we gave it to them, and they were absolutely blown away. And something they say about our group is you come, and you serve, and you give it your all. But secondly, we're just grateful that you're really generous, that your church believes in us, that you financially back us. And they were so, so thrilled about all the stuff we could do yesterday. So, Will, we served at the Healing Center. We served at the New Life Mission. We had people preparing for the Cuba trip as well. Now, some folks may not know, where did that $1,000 come from? Yeah, the $1,000 came from the Christmas offering. So what we do is we took money and gave it to 4C India, 4C Cuba, and then all our outreach partnerships here. And what we said is we don't want to control how you're doing business or what you're doing. We just want to bless you. We want to give you the resources to continue to do the work that you're doing. And that's where that money came from. That, that's pretty incredible. So if somebody wanted to be involved on a Saturday morning, it's the first Saturday of every month. If they wanted to get involved at the next one, what could they expect and what would they do? Yeah, what you can expect is it's really simple. All you got to do is show up right at about 930. Wear some clothes. You don't mind getting dirty. A lot of times it's painting, it's cleaning, it's organizing, and really we're just there to serve. So we show up and we're just flexible. Whatever they need from us on that Saturday, and you can expect to serve about an hour and a half, two hours, and some of us go get lunch right after. So the first Saturday of each month. And you said show up. Where would they show up? It's not here. It's not here. Yeah, don't show up here. You could, I mean, if you want to hang out in the parking lot, you could, you could show up here, but show <laughs> up at the site. And if, even today, if you're like, hey, July 6th, uh, I think I'll be available. That's our next serve. Just mark on your Connect card today. You can use that card for so yeah. many different things. But you can just even mark it in the comment section. Hey, I'm interested. Make sure my email is on the connection list. We'll so in. the folks in the past that have said they're interested in outreach, they get a reminder yep. from you. Yep. If you haven't done that, just in the comment section, tell me about the outreaches. And that way you'll get a reminder in your email box. But all you got to do is show up at either New Life Mission, which is in Hamilton, right down 129, turn left at McDonald's. It's right right near there. And then or at the Tri-County area right near um, the old, is Dick's Sporting Goods still there? I haven't been there in forever. Yeah, right, right near the, the Big Vineyard Church, we call it. And uh, right there at the Healing Center, um, that's where you can serve. And so I just want to say thanks for being a generous church. Uh, thanks for giving money at Christmas to allow us to support these things. It's pretty uh, impressive what you do. Uh, but there's something I need to tell you about, uh, Will, so hang out here just a second. Um, the first service, we had a little, a little thing happen before first service. Um, we were in the prep um, getting ready for service, and we, were, we, we used a little bit of haze uh, in the room. And uh, because of the setup of the stage, things were different. The aerodynamics in the room were different. And the haze went right up into that air conditioning right there, and it set off the fire alarm. So if you were here before 8 o'clock, you got to meet the firemen. Because they came in trucks, they were ready to put out the fire and save people. It didn't happen. But the other thing that happened... And I'm going somewhere with this. The other thing that happened is it knocked out the air conditioners, which ended up being a blessing. 
because I was preaching, and I'm going to do with you, I'm going to preach about what happens when you die, and there's a small section about eternity and where you're going to spend it, and so we had more salvations first service. No, I'm kidding. I made that up. I don't know if we did or not. I don't have the numbers yet, but I thought it'd be really cool if we got it hot in here and we preached a little bit about hell. Wouldn't that feel good? Um, yeah. But I wanted to say all that to say thanks to your team, because the only reason it's working now is you and your team, you grabbed ladders, you got things together, so guys in the back, whoever worked, Will, can you guys give it up for this tech team and the worship team? Thank you guys for what you do. Absolutely fantastic. I was sweating uh, horribly, horribly. Hey, I'm so glad that you're here. Second week of You Asked For It Message Series. So the first most frequent question we got from people in the weeks after Easter about this message series had to do with, how do I grow as a disciple? How do I find purpose in life? Sometimes I don't feel like a good Christian. And how do I grow? Pastor Will kind of took all of those and combined them together. And last week just did a phenomenal job talking about growing as a disciple. And um, just, I thought, knocked the ball out of the park. So great job, Pastor Will. This week, I'm going to deal with the most second frequently asked question, which is, is, what happens when you die? What happens when you die? Several folks asked some version of that question. And one person was very clear, like, I'm not talking what's heaven like, what's hell like. I'm not, like, mechanically, what happens when you die? And the Bible actually speaks to that. Now, when we get done, you're not going to know everything because everything isn't revealed to us. But you're going to know enough you're going to know enough. And two things I'm hoping happen today, if you're a follower of Jesus. I hope that today you hear for yourself some information that for you might be new, or I'm going to remind you of some things, and I hope you leave encouraged for you personally, because there's some great encouraging news today. Uh, the second thing that I hope happens is, if you're a follower of Jesus, is I hope that you listen today, not just for you, because that's always short-sighted. It's always short-sighted as a disciple to listen to messages just for you. You should listen for you. You should listen for you first. But every disciple, every time the Word of God is expanded upon uh, and explained and talked about and we're encouraged from the Word, we have the opportunity to listen, not just for ourselves, but to listen for how God might use that information through us to somebody else. It's not going to be long, every one of you. It's going to probably happen within a year or two, minimally. You're going to be seated in a room as you remember somebody's life. It's going to be a memorial service or a funeral. And at that moment, most everybody wants to kind of know, all right, we see the body or we see the picture of the person, but what's going on right now? What are they doing? Like, what's the reality for them now? It's one of the most prevailing questions that exists, even for people that have been following Jesus for the longest time. And so it seems like the Lord um, wanted to put me uh, through a season personally of thinking about this. Um, and, and the reason is, is it was the number one question, uh, number two question that you guys ask about, um, and that's why we're doing it. But the second thing is just this week, I, I was involved in a, in a, uh, a funeral. And um, I'm approaching the anniversary of my, my mom's passing as well, and that always kind of gets to me a little bit. I still miss her horribly, and those of you that have lost somebody you love, you know what that's like. And so for the last few weeks, I've been personally reflecting on, like, the value of this life and how does this life speak into eternity. Now, fortunately for today, we get to go to one primary scripture. I'm actually going to go to a lot. You don't have them all in your message notes, which are on the back of that paper we looked at earlier because I run out of room. But I'm going to go to a lot of scriptures. But I get to go to one scripture to primarily direct our conversations today. 
And what's really cool is sometimes in the Bible, you have to go to several scriptures and you begin to piece together, that's called doing theology, different beliefs. So this passage speaks a little bit to a subject and another passage speaks a little bit to that subject. And we piece it together um, consistently through good, what's called hermeneutics, that's the science of Bible interpretation. We, we piece it together and we come up with a belief that's in harmony with the scriptures. But often you got to look all over the Bible for that stuff, because sometimes the Bible just doesn't give us a lot of data on the stuff we want to know. But when it comes to this topic, one or two or three primary passages speaks with great candor and clarity about the topic today. And so if you want to go ahead and you go in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, you can turn there. Um, 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians is the second letter of Paul in our Bible to the Corinthian church, but it's probably the third or fourth letter he wrote. And here, here's how we know that. In 2 Corinthians, he refers to his earlier letter and he quotes himself. And so typically, if you run across that passage and you're interested, you go to 1 Corinthians and you try to find where he quotes himself, like, ah, but if you go to 1 Corinthians, the quoting he does is not in 1 Corinthians. Evidently, he wrote multiple letters. We only have a few of them. So somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he wrote at least one or two more. But the Holy Spirit, through divine intervention, did not see fit to put that into what we call the canon of Scripture. So what we call 2 Corinthians is really several letters in to his correspondence with this church. And it's late in his ministry. In fact, He's kind of on the eve of what for him is going to be the end of his life. The Apostle Paul is going to lose his life at Rome. He's going to be beheaded for his faith. That's what's going to happen to him. Now, the last letter we have in our Bible from Paul, he's very aware that his death is impending. It's 2 Timothy, the second letter we have to the guy named Timothy. 2 Timothy talks to Timothy from Paul about what it means to kind of hand the torch over to a younger leader. It's a powerful book. It's Paul's kind of will and testament. But 2 Corinthians, which happens late in his life, kind of on the eve of these events, you get to hear a lot about what's important to him. And what's very interesting, what's going on in, in the Corinthian churches throughout the Roman Empire, the Christians have just come out of one extreme persecution. And they're about to go into another. And so everybody in the Corinthian church has heard stories about Christians who have lost their lives. Some for the gospel, some just because of old age. They know people by name who've been beheaded. And so Paul writes to kind of answer some of the questions. What happens when believers die? It's a pretty important question no matter how deep your faith is. So I've shared this story in the past, but on, it was a Wednesday. I was down to see my mom. She was, we didn't know, very, very close to death because she was very cognizant and aware and talked uh, well. It's just clear that her body was um, de decaying at a rate that you know, she wasn't going to recover unless there was a miracle. And um, so on that Wednesday, um, we are talking about the fact that she's going to die. And she says to me this phrase. It was very interesting to me. This is the woman that I learned scripture from. Uh, this is the woman who first read me Bible stories consistently. Um, I've never known somebody with the faith of my mother. Uh, honestly, if you were sick, you had something going on in your life, you wanted my mom to pray because I believe somehow she had like a direct access to God. I, I lived with her. It's the way I felt, all right? And so here she is, and here, here's what she says to me. So I, I, I offer this because I want you to know how 
normal this question is. She says to me, um, I'm not afraid to be dead. Like I know when I'm dead, I, I know I'm with the Lord. She, here's what she said though. I'm just afraid of dying. And I said, Mom, what do you mean? Like this is our last conversation, by the way. And she says, I just don't know what's going to happen the moment I die. Like what's that going to be like? And uh, my mom had some kind of superstitions about death, not superstitions that were anti-Christian, just like she didn't want to be buried because she was afraid they might put her in a casket alive. So she made my dad spend thousands of dollars on an above-ground mausoleum. Yeah. And so guess what he did? There's an above-ground mausoleum. That's what you do, right? And so she just didn't want to be in the grave. And she was very concerned. Like uh, she wanted us to make sure she hadn't been breathing for a few days. Right? And she said, don't let them embalm me right away because if I'm not dead and they embalm me, then I'll be dead. So she had some fears around that. But the number one thing she wanted me to talk with her about was like, what's going to happen the moment I'm actually dead? I, truth is, I don't know all that. But I was able to go back in my mind to some teaching I had received and some scripture that speaks directly to this. And we're going to read them. And I was able to share with her one basic truth that I don't think answers all the questions, but it's the basic truth I want to leave you. We're going to start with it, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack it, all right? The Bible makes it clear that for the believer in Jesus, when we're absent from the body, when we die, when, when the realest, most alive part of us, our soul, is released from this earthly body, that's what we're going to read and study about in a moment. The Bible says at that moment, we're present with Christ. And it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't tell us uh, what the address is. Like, where are we going to be? It doesn't tell us what the environment's going to be like. It tells us one truth. That for a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So here I am having this last conversation. And I say to my mom, Mom, I don't know all of that. Um, but here's what I know. And you know the scripture. I just want to remind it. And I said, the Bible tells us that the moment you stop living, you, know, you stop breathing, your brain stops functioning, the moment that happens, you're present with Christ. And she knew it, but I was able to remind her, and the visible change in her in that moment released a tension and a fear in her. So her next sentences to me were these. Would you pray for me that I go home, go ahead and go home and be with Jesus? And I said, Mom, that'd be really hard to do, but I'll, I'll pray for you, you know, when I get home. And she's like, no, no, no. I want you to pray for me right now that I get to go home and be with Jesus. So the hardest thing I've ever done is I grabbed her hand and I prayed with her. And uh, I wasn't that worried about my prayer because, you know, the Lord has a regular history of not answering my prayers the way I want him to answer them. And so I'm saying the words. And that was a Wednesday. And it was Father's Day, Sunday morning. I'm coming in the building. And I get the call that she had passed. That was our last conversation. And uh, I was both sad and joyful. But the coolest thing for me was knowing that the Scripture has this power, if we believe it, to release us of tensions. And while it doesn't answer all of our questions we'd like answered, it does give us enough to have confidence even when we have questions. By, by the way, you know this dynamic. Everybody in this room that got married. How did you know that you were supposed to get married? Now, for most of us, we didn't know scientifically. All of our questions were not answered. But we had enough confidence in what we did know to take what we did know and step into what we didn't know. Does that make sense? 
If you've ever moved because of a job, you were given an opportunity and moved because of a job, how did you know whether or not you should move? Well, you probably didn't have all your questions answered. But you knew enough, and you had enough confidence in what you did know, that it helped you step into what you didn't know with a certain amount of comfort. That's what our conversation today is going to do. I'm not going to answer all your questions. I don't, I don't know. I think we can look at the Scripture and we can take confidence in it. And ultimately, we can have confidence in the Scripture because the Scripture reflects to us the character of God. And that's ultimately the confidence that we have is in God and His character. So with all of that said, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your message notes. So Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. They're asking questions about death. And here's what he says. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Now, a little history. So the Apostle Paul has a Jewish background. In the Corinthian church, a lot of them have a Jewish background. And in their Jewish background, they remember a primary event in their history. It was a time when everybody lived in tents. They were on a journey from Egypt, catch this language, to the promised land. And as they were journeying from this place to the place they're ultimately going to go, they're in, mo- they're in motion and they live in tents. The whole time they're journeying to the promised land, they're remembering the promises of God. And here's, here are the promises. God says, I'm going to send you, my people, from a land of slavery to a land of promise. And that land is described this way. It's flowing with milk and honey. Now, that doesn't mean much to you and me, perhaps, but to the children of Israel, that was the language of comfort, prosperity, and the good life. Lots of milk, lots of honey. Evidently, those things were very hard to come by back then. And that's, and then, and then, and then it says, and it's a land that is ripe and overflowing, and you're going to get the benefit of picking grapes from plants in vineyards that you did not plant. So there's going to be abundant food, but not just from the work of your own hands, just the favor of God. That's what the promised land is going to be. So every time you pick up your tent and move a couple more miles, I want you to keep in mind, the tent is temporary because we're going to the promised land where milk and honey, plants, you get to harvest what you did not plant. And here's the other big image. You're going to live in houses not made of animal skins. You're going to live in houses built of stone. They're permanent houses. And the cool kicker is you don't have to build them. That's what the promised land is going to be like. Now, that's what every Jewish person reading Paul's words has in mind. He's specifically hearkening back to the language of, remember the stories when our people lived in tents and they could only hope with bated breath for that time when they get to live permanently and the travel is over and they trade off the tent for houses of stone and they get to eat an abundant amount of food immediately. They don't have to wait for harvest. They don't have to sweat it out. It's going to be so good. There's going to be ample milk and honey for everybody. That's what's in mind. And he uses that language right here. We're going to put off the earthly tent. The tent's going to be taken down. And we're going to have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us for God himself, not by human hands. Verse 2, we grow weary in our present bodies. I was watching some of you come in this morning, and as you sat down, some of you actually went, oh, oh. The bodies get old, don't they? Do you remember some of you a little older uh, than I am? Do you remember when you were 35 like me? Do you remember that? 
Yeah, it's okay. I'm not quite 35. I'm 38. So but remember, remember when you were younger, like the prime of life, and then you get a little older, and things hurt, and they ache? And Paul has in mind here the physical toll on the human body that happens, not because we were designed that way, but because we live in a broken system. Sin has affected this world. And so our bodies decay. Our bodies show sign of aging. Um, we have accidents. We have broken bones. We overstress some things. They rip sometimes. Uh, some of you have shoulder issues today because you overwork them. So he's talking about physical, but he's not just talking about physical. There's a toll that happens as you live in life because the world isn't perfect. And in our temporary tent bodies, sometimes we can be very aware of the, the weightiness of living in a world like this one. It can be beautiful and it can be exhausting. I used to think that having toddlers in the house, we had three toddlers at the same time in our house. We had one child, five years later we had another one, and then within just a couple years we had a couple more, all right? So we had three toddlers in our house, and I thought that was the hardest season of life that we'd ever go through. Turns out that's not true. Turns out middle school is rough, and I thought that was the hardest. Turns out, actually, launching your kids into adulthood, that's hard. So y'all pray for me, because kids who have made it up to almost 18 are about to be taken out by dad. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. So there is the physical toll. Then there's just the emotional toll. But something else Paul's going to refer to that for some of us is a little hard to grasp. There is a spiritual gap that we become aware of. There are longings in us sometimes that will never be fulfilled until this journey's over. The old timers, like those Christians who really got it. Some of you had a grandma like this. Some of you knew an old preacher like this. Yeah, you had somebody, and they had been walking with Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years. And theirs was a life, not of perfection, but of faithfulness. And they talk about heaven as if they could almost see it. And there's a longing in them for a home that they don't have. It's a rare thing in today's world. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. That's all of that stuff, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual gap is what Paul is talking about when he says, for we know that in this earthly tent that we live in, before it's taken down, verse 4, we live with earthly bodies and we groan and we sigh. But it's not, he says, that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. So, verse 6, we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. Do you hear that phrase? Always confident. That's what I was talking about. That's why the psalmist who writes that was Joseph read to us that you need to know something about God. You can have confidence in the fact that he is always loving us. It's confidence. That confidence becomes stepping stone, solid ground for our journey. You can have confidence that God is power. Paul says there's something about our faith, our confidence of God, that translates to us at that time of life where we have least control. That's the time of our death. Uh, Pastor Will mentioned it last week. Um, it's true. I've joked about it as well. All the studies are in, and they're conclusive Nobody leaves this world alive. No one. 
All of us are going to die. The death rate still hovers right at 100%. But we can't control that timing. That is the Lord's to determine. So we come to that issue. We come to that time full speed, not knowing when that time is. That's in the hands of God. So we can't control the journey. We can't control the timing. We can't control the circumstance. That's ultimately up to the Lord. But man, we're headed there nonetheless. So we're confident, not in controlling the circumstance. That's not a good place to put your confidence. We can be confident in the God who is there controlling the circumstance. So he says, we're always confident. And then again, in verse 8, yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. One version says it this way, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. That's the verse I quoted back to my mom. That's the verse I say at almost every funeral of somebody who I know has been following Jesus. I'll say something like this. This body you see up here, this is a tent. This is an outward covering This is not and was never the most alive part of this person. The most alive part of you today is not the body you see when you look in a mirror. It's not what you got ready to come to church. The most alive part of you is your soul. So C.S. Lewis says it this way. We are not bodies with souls. No, 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 no. The emphasis is the other way. We are actually souls with bodies. And the body is temporary, but the soul is eternal. Now, the Christian church historically has always valued soul and body. Always. So much so because life is so sacred in the Christian tradition that when a person disrobes themselves, when their tent is taken down, that's still to be treated with honor and dignity. So wherever the Christian church historically around the globe has flourished, dead bodies were treated with honor and respect because they were a remembrance of the sacred life that was contained in that body. So marking graves, not dismembering bodies. We don't dismember people because we're purely scientific, materially minded. We don't dismember our dead and feed them to our animals because that would be great in terms of getting the full utility out of the body. You don't do that because that body represents a certain amount of sacredness, even though what was really alive is now gone. And by the way, historically, a hundred years ago or so, and sometimes still echoes into today, historically, Christians wouldn't burn bodies when they were dead. This created all kinds of problems when there was rampant disease in the Middle Ages. You don't burn bodies because... That body is going to be resurrected, and that body represents the sacredness of the life. Only pagans historically, people who didn't have a belief in the resurrected bodies that God was going to give us, we'll talk about those in a moment, only pagans would burn people. It was in places like India that uh, they would burn bodies and push them out to sea or set a funeral pyre. But if you were Christian historically, to separate yourself from that kind of practice was important because the body was sacred because it housed the life of a human being made in the image of God. Now, biblically, you can't build a case from Scripture that you shouldn't be cremated. You can't. So if you want to be cremated, 
be cremated, it's cheaper. I'd encourage you to consider it, all right? Just practicality. But historically, you wouldn't do that because up against the culture of paganism, this was clearly different than, all right? So if you want to follow that tradition, that's fine too, all right? Whatever. The whole point being that the body is considered sacred, even though Christians have always believed the body was not ultimately life. The body is what animated the soul, gave it a presence in the physical world, but it wasn't who you really were at your innermost being. All right? So, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Look at verse 9. So whether we are, look at the, I love his language here. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. So Paul breaks it down to two basic realities, all of us are going to have. You're going to be present in this body, and you're going to have a reality where you're not present in the body. You're going to be present in soul only, all right? Now in that moment, Paul says, the goal is the same. The goal is to make a lot of money. Of course not. That's not what he says. Uh, the goal is to get uh, a lot of likes on your next Facebook post. The goal is to have everybody like you. No, no, no. No, the goal for a disciple in the body or out of the body, the whole goal is to please Christ. I don't know if you grew up in a church that didn't make this clear, but disciples have a clear purpose. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've committed your life to him, your purpose is set. Your purpose in the body or out of the body is to live in a way that pleases Christ, period. Everything else comes far below that high priority. In fact, everything else is supposed to be leveraged towards that priority. So all the other stuff that this world tells us is our purpose and our goal. Live your best life. Be happy. Love yourself. Take care of yourself. Be kind. Be whatever the world... Pro Those are all valid and fine in their place. But if you're a disciple, your core why, your core purpose is simply stated as, please Christ. Please Christ. Make him happy. And when that is set, the cascading impact of that changes everything. Some of you know the pain of trying to live to please others. Sometimes that's because of shame. Sometimes that's because of the pecking order in which you fall at work. Sometimes it's because of some dysfunction in your family order. But as an adult, you begin to awaken to the challenge of trying to live your life to please others and how fickle and changing that can be. The good news as a disciple, that is never what you were called to do. Some of you have believed the mantra of the 80s at some period in your life that the one who dies with the most toys wins, as if that's the game we're playing. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, that is not your purpose. All the stuff of life is leveraged for your purpose. And so that is true. Here's the consistent thing that we can have confidence in. Whether you're in the body or you're out of the body, we're here to please Christ. So look at what he says. So whether here in this body or in this body, our goal is to please him. For we all must stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve 
for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, there's a movie that's not decidedly Christian. There's a lot of violence. Don't watch it. But it's called Gladiator. It goes back a few years. And there's a line in the movie Gladiator that was awesome. Don't watch it. It's gory. It's not good. Guys, it's a great film. You're going to love it. All right, so Gladiator. Gladiator, here's the line. It says, what we do here, do you know the rest of it? Echoes in eternity. It wasn't a Christian moment. It was really kind of pagan. But the point is valid. Biblically speaking, what we do when we live in the tent in this earthly body has an impact on eternity. So that our eternity, life in the tent and life without the tent, our eternity and our life now, they're connected. They're connected. And Paul tells us that for the believer, he's writing to Christians at Corinth. He's not writing to the world. For the believer, he says, believers, you're going to stand before God to be judged with what you did while you lived in your tent. You're going to stand before God to be judged. Now, some of you know just enough Christianity to know that we talk every week around here about being saved by grace. In just a moment, I'm going to explain to you the difference between grace that removes you from the judgment of God and the penalty of your sins and the judgment he's talking about here, which is the judgment that comes on every believer for what you did while you were in this life. And by the way, this is the very thought that has captured my imagination so much for the last six weeks or so. As I've tried to think through, what does it mean for me as a follower of Jesus to live in a temporary world that impacts the eternal world? Let me read to you what Erwin Lutzer says. Now, you may not know Erwin Lutzer, but he pastored the Moody Memorial Church. It's a phenomenal church in Chicago. They have the Moody Bible Network radio stations. So if you had your dial somewhere in the, uh, on your FM dial somewhere in the 80s up to early 90s, right? Not time, but on the dial. You might hear Erwin Lutzer's preach. Here's what he says. I think it's a powerful statement. He says, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying enjoying a personal welcome from Christ, to be absent from the body, to be present with Christ, or be cat catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. So what you believe about eternity on your message notes determines how you live life today. You will live it somewhere. I will live it somewhere. And what you do today impacts it. So let's talk about the three things that happen after this life is done. First of all, our physical bodies die. This is what Paul was talking about. Our tent gets taken down. The journey for us is over. Our physical bodies die. So look at Hebrews chapter 9. Here's what the writer says. Just as people are destined to die once, and then after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So as long as this world is continuing, and Jesus doesn't call it to an end, that's going to happen one day. But as long as this world's continuing, you get a life, and it's going to come to an end. That's not meant to be gruesome. What that's meant to do is to put a certain amount of sobriety and urgency on how you're living this life. So yesterday, a member of this congregation I count as a friend was uh, burying a relative. 
And it was my pleasure to be a part of that service. I didn't know the guy, but I care for the family. And so I'm standing there in the parking lot, about to get out of my, I'm sitting there in the parking lot, about to get out of my car. And I'm thinking, God, I don't, what do I say? And I prepared some thoughts. I'm a little wrestling with what I want to say. And I, I remember that as long as we have time on this earth, we have an opportunity to change the way we're living in the tent called our bodies. And so I doubled down on a few points and talked about that. I don't know if it landed to anybody else, but one guy walked away thinking it's time in a new way to look at how I'm living in the tent body. That was me. And that's really what I want to do for you. I, I don't know when it is that the funeral will be for you. I don't. I do know it's coming. I hope it's a long way away. And that reality for the believer is not meant to scare you. You may have some questions like my mom did. It's actually meant to get you to take now seriously. Because we don't get forever. You get one life through. So the old saying is, is that one life and it's not soon to last but only what is done for Christ is what's going to last. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so if you're a believer today, I don't want you to be afraid of what's going to happen. We're going to continue to unpack it. But I do hope that the temperature is being turned up. Air conditioner is running, but I'm talking metaphorically, all right? I do hope that the temperature is being turned up a little bit that this life that God has blessed you with matters. And I'm glad we're getting a glorious body, a new body. I, I'm really thrilled about that, that we're going to lay down this tent and I'm going to pick up a perfected body because I'm not sure I've been the best steward of this body all the time, you know? So I'm really glad I get a new one. In, in my mind, I'm six foot plus, right? I don't have a six pack. I got an eight pack because I'm going to be a little bit better, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm fit together. Imagine Superman with this awesome face. That's really what I'm talking about. So I don't know what, I don't know what a glorious new body is going to look like. I'm glad we get one. But ultimately, at the end of time, do you know what really matters? What matters is, is that we get to be present with Christ. Present with Christ. Our souls get separated from our physical bodies because we're appointed once to die. And then after that comes the judgment. So we are not souls separated from our bodies, we are actually bodies that have been disconnected from our souls. Our bodies remain. They begin to decay. Any sign of life is over, but our souls are very much alive. And on the day of your funeral, when everybody goes to your aunt's house to eat and talk about you, some of them will wonder what you're doing right then and uh, how sad it is that your life is over. And in some sense, it is. But they will think that your life is over, and it's not. You will never be more alive, ever, than when your soul is disentangled from this earthly temporary tent. It's hard to remember that, because as long as we live on this earth, our feet are planted on the ground, and the things of earth really matter to us. And they should, because they matter. And it it's really difficult, though, to remember that eternity matters more. 
So, first of all, we have a reality where our physical bodies die. I want you to look at what uh, the Bible says from Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. But look at this next phrase. But cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Jesus at the burial of Lazarus with Lazarus with uh, Martha and Mary, Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What happens to our souls when our physical bodies die? I don't know it all, but I know that to be absent with the body is to be present with Christ. So the two thieves on the cross, both saw the same things, both were guilty, both needed to be forgiven. One reaches out for grace to be applied to his life. And here's what Jesus says. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is where some of the confusion comes in. Like, where are we going to be? So are we going to be in heaven instantly when we die? We take our last breath, our brain quit functioning? I don't know. Here, Jesus uses the word paradise. And so it's very natural to go, what's the geography? What's the address? Is it heaven? Even if it is heaven, the Bible tells us we're going to get a new heaven at the end of time. Is it paradise? Are we just sleeping in the ground? I don't know all the answers, but I do know this. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Paul reaffirms it in Corinthians, to be absent from the body, to be present with Christ. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's, how, here's the logic. If you're with Jesus in paradise, that's a thumbs up kind of reality. It's going to be pretty good. If you're with Jesus in heaven, that's a thumbs up reality because being with Jesus in heaven is pretty good. If you're with Jesus in Hamilton, Ohio after you die, that's a thumbs up reality because you're with Jesus. Do you get the current theme here? The whole key for the believer is not the environment. It's who you're with and who's with you. To be with Christ in this life means to be with Christ after. I don't know the details. It doesn't look like we just soul sleep. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. I just don't know the address. But the truth is, is none of that matters. Because wherever Christ is, that's where you want to be. And that's really all that matters because the rest of the Bible makes it clear that everywhere Jesus goes after his resurrection, everywhere he goes, he walks in power and he wins, which means if you're standing with him, you're in power and you're winning, all right? So don't know all that happens other than your physical body dies. I know that your soul gets to be present with Christ. Now, look at what uh, Luke says. I'm sorry, look at what Paul says in the church, uh, to the church at Philippi. He says in verse 20 of chapter 1, And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For me to live, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. So our physical bodies die. Our souls separate from our bodies, but we will face a judgment. And I want to talk about that for just a moment. 
Now, there's a lot of interpretation here, but there tends to be a pretty consistent theme by those who hold the Bible as the authoritative word of God, that there is two judgments in the future, one or the other for you. There's what the Bible scholars, the Bible refers to as the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment, all right? So uh, look at 1 Peter, before we talk about that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And remember that the heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So must, you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. So what you do now matters because you're going to be judged. Here's the two big judgments. Most people agree, not all, but most that the great white throne judgment is for non-believers. That's found in Revelation, beginning with verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, all right? And the one sitting on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. So there's a great white throne, there's a book of life. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is a bad place. Don't know all that it is, but it's described as a lake of fire, which means that's bad. Other ways it's described, it's a place of darkness. It's a place, look at this phrase. Old King James words it this way, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not a good day. So at the great white throne of judgment, there's a book that's open. And if your name is not in the book, the Lamb's book of life, Jesus is the Lamb once for all slain for all sin. The Lamb, Jesus' book of life. If your name's not there, you get to go to the lake of fire. I'm just, that's Bible. That's not Ben. All right? So you not like it, but that's the Bible. All right? If your name is in the book, here's the good news. Once your name's in it, it can't be blotted out. Like you can't take it out. Your name's in the Lamb's book of life. Once it's there, once it's read, you're secure. And the way that that happens is as you commit your life to Christ, you trust the work he did for you. You receive salvation by faith. Because grace is a powerful force, which means you don't have to work. The work of Jesus is applied to your life. You had a deficit, Jesus paid it. You were dirty, Jesus washed it. You were a sinner, he declares you to be a saint. That's salvation. Your name gets written. The Bible actually says it's a new name, and you're going to discover it when you get to heaven. I don't know what my new name is, but it's going to be better than the name I was given. I ain't going to lie. I like my name okay, but I'm going to get a much better one. And you're going to get one too. And on that day, your real name and who you really are is going to be revealed for the very first time. And it's going to be permanent. But at the great white throne of judgment, what happens there is the names that aren't found in the book go away. But that's not the only judgment that the Bible talks about. The Bible also refers in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, the scariest passage in the Bible to me will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, who, you who break God's laws. So they came to church. They maybe came to Four Corners Church. Maybe they served. Maybe they gave. Maybe they were generous people. Maybe their lives were in some ways better and kinder than people who were really bad Christians. But that's not what saves you. So what happens is, is that at this place, Jesus says, I don't know you. And only being known by Jesus in relationship, secured because of his work on the cross and in his resurrection, secures your eternal destiny with him. So that's the great white throne judgment. The other judgment is 
what the Bible calls, and it's kind of casually called, the judgment seat of Christ. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our core passage again. Here's what it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, in the tent, whether good or bad. So if you make it past the great white throne judgment because your sins were judged on earth, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm headed for destruction. Save me. If that happens while you live in the tent, then you bypass great white throne judgment because your name's in the book. You don't bypass all judgment. This is the part people don't like to talk about, but the Bible makes it clear Christians are going to be judged. Not for salvation. You're in. Like heaven, like the worst is you're going to live in the bad zip code in heaven. That's the worst that's going to happen to you, all right? And even there, the streets are paved with gold. So just, it's a pretty good place. Worst zip code in heaven, still a pretty good place. You want to be there, all right? But Christians are going to get judged for their works on earth. This is scary. The Bible says, even as a Christian, every idle word uttered, the way we treated people, how we acted, whether we were good disciples or bad disciples, how we worked for peace, how we told the truth, how we gave, how we served. At the great white throne judgment, it will be a horrible day. But at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be beautiful because this is the place where Jesus is going to say to his people, all that bad stuff I forgive, but now let's talk about the stuff you did that I empowered you to do. On that day, some of you are going to hear Jesus say to you, you clothed me when I was naked. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. You visited me when I was in prison. And you might say to him, when did I do that stuff? And here's what he's going to say. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. On that day, the impact you made for the kingdom of God on earth is going to be on display. Every penny you gave away for God's kingdom work is going to be known and identified between you and Jesus. On that day, some of you are going to hear this. I really do believe this. I'm not pandering for the moment. Hey, at the Christmas offering in 2018 and 2019, you gave to impact kids' lives at the summer camp. That's what you did, by the way. You planted seeds. And this week, we're going to reap a harvest from the seeds you planted months ago. We have currently, by the way, 110 kids have registered to be a part of our summer camp this week. That's where we clap. That's amazing. Come on, let's, let's give it up. Yeah, that's what Jesus got. You invested in the next generation. And the Bible says you're going to get crowns. The most beautiful thing's going to happen. He's going to give you a crown, but before you put it on your head, here's what the Bible says you're going to do. You're going to lay your crowns at his feet because you realize that everything you did really was just in response to how amazing he is. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. It's a place of reward and joy and satisfaction. It's what he's, when he puts his hand on your shoulder and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. So I'm well past time, but let me end with this. I wanted to be uh, pretty transparent with you here today. And uh, I, I know that that's always dangerous because people hear sometimes what they need to hear and want to hear, not necessarily what I said. But uh, I've really wrestled lately with the fact that I live on the earth and the roots of my life long to take residence in the dirt of this earth. 
and the things of earth, I have wrestled with them and for the last six weeks um, on a level I haven't in a long time, and it bothers me. I'm really grateful that the Lord saw fit to have you guys ask this question about what happens when we die, because it has lit in me a real urgency to make sure that my life, as long as I'm in this tent, is lived for the glory of Christ. And the truth is, guys, I want you to like me. I want it too much. I was reminded this week it doesn't matter. Oh, it matters on a practical level. Of course, it's easier. But what matters is what my heavenly Father says about me. And I'm grateful because I've thought about the fact that I live in a temporary tent. The only words, ultimately, the only words that are ever going to matter are well done, good and faithful servant. And the only words are going to matter to you. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Because on that day, your temporary tent is taken down and your real life begins. And only the stuff in your temporary life done for Christ is going to last. Every other investment is going to come to nothing. There will be no IBM. There will be no Coca-Cola, Disney, P&G, GE. Banking is over. All industry is gone. All education is gone. Only what is done for Christ lasts. And only what we do for him in this earth is what we're going to take to eternity with us. And I want to live more and more in the reality of that. And that's what disciples are called to do. So would you grab out your connect card and let's take a couple steps in the right direction. So every week I give you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So today I just want to be very clear. If you will agree with what the Bible says about you, that you are a sinner loved by God, incapable of saving yourself, you'll start there. You can receive the free gift of God offered because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the free gift of salvation. You never earn it, but you can receive it. You can, as it were, step through a doorway that Jesus opened. You can do that. You can receive the food, spiritually speaking, that he offers and finally nourish your soul to life. You can pass from death spiritually to life when you say, Jesus, I trust the work you've done for me. I trust in that alone to save me. I want to follow you with my life. If you're feeling prompted to do that, take the pen, check next step A, and this week somebody from our team will communicate with you about what it means to be a child of God. In a minute, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you a chance to say to God, God, save me. I want to have you judge my sins here and now, and I want the blood of Jesus applied to my account now so that on that dreadful day, my name will be found in the Lamb's book of life, and I bypass that judgment. Or maybe next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. This is where we celebrate what we just talked about, your dead to sin, dead to old self, and raised to new life with Christ. Next step, C says, I want to pray this prayer each morning. Father, help me to live knowing today is temporary and eternity is forever. Help me to make your priorities my priorities. Can I just be clear for just a second? Disciples go to heaven, even bad ones. And the truth is, is I'm a bad disciple sometimes. I bet I'm not the only one. And eternity, the reality of eternity, heavy on our hearts means bad disciples get a fire in their heart to become good ones. 
people who the things of this world don't have quite the hold. And you really look forward to the day your heavenly father, because of the grace of Jesus, embraces you all the way. Next step, D says, hey, send me the link to sign up for Grow. Grow number two, which is developing spiritual habits on June 23. So if you sign up for this, we'll send you the information. If you have questions, just check the box. We'll send it to you. And next step, he says, hey, I want to sign up for a summer group. We've talked about it. Not sure which one. Go ahead and check the box. We'll send them to you. You can look at them this week in the comfort of your own home and at your own pace and send it back to us when you're ready. Why don't you set that aside? Before we pray, I want to give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with here in this church. So I've already talked about the investments made here, the seeds that were sown. So if you invested, I, I want to be clear in case you missed it. This week is harvest time. And the seeds you planted around Christmas and after to pay for this set and the programming, and we're going to harvest that this week. And we're trusting God for an abundant harvest. We're trusting God that if it's 110 kids and that's all that comes, it's likely to be more. That the impact made in each, kid's, each kid's life gives us a tenfold return. So for each one this week that is touched, we pray their life touches 10 people. And guess who has a part in that harvest? You do. The other thing we've been planting seeds on lately is our Easter offering. It comes to a conclusion next week. Our Easter offering is primarily for students. And so we're at about 22,000 of 25,000 we wanted to raise. We're at uh, 30% participation in the life of this church. And in a few months, in September, when we launch our redone student space, I would like for you to have an investment there. I would like for you to have planted seeds. So in September, I'll say to you, it's harvest time for students. And do you know who's most excited about harvest time? It's the farmer who planted the seed. He's the one, she's the one most eager to see them sprout and grow to the point of maturity so they can be harvested for God's good purpose. And I want you to have a part of that. So you can write on your check, on your offering envelope. You can go online for two more weeks, Easter offering, and just be a part. Even if it's just a dollar, plant seriously. Plant a spiritual seed. Take something silly like temporary money and make an eternal difference with it. Let's pray about our next steps in our offering right now. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the lives of this church. God, I want to thank you that you are unchanging. And God, I want to thank you that while I don't know everything about death and all that's going to happen to us, I know enough to be confident that if I'm with you, I'm okay. I'm more than okay. Father, I want to pray for the good and bad disciples who are listening right now. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin, that you would draw bad disciples back to obedience. I pray that you would put eternity in our hearts, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. I pray, Lord, that we would live as if what we do in this life does echo in eternity and that we would look forward to the day you put your hand on our shoulder and you declare, well done, good and faithful. And I lift up those men and women that are declaring right now, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Wash away my sins. I cannot save myself. I trust the work that you have done on the cross and in your resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. And Father, would you take our offerings? Would you take our next steps and cause them to go far and wide? And Father, we boldly ask you for an abundant harvest, harvest this week in the lives of kids. Thank you for the team that has gathered to make it happen. Thank you for the work that's already gone on. Now, Father, would you take our efforts and use it for the changed lives that are coming. In Jesus' mighty and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.